You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey, everybody. Pete here. Listen, before we begin, on behalf of the entire Bible for Normal People team, I would just like to thank you, first of all, for your support of the podcast this year. It's been fun. It's been great. Thank you so much for hanging in there with us. We also want to thank you again for your support during the campaign, which we just finished, we raised some funds that are helping us do some of the things that we've been wanting to do here for a number of years. So, thank you so much. And we want to thank a few folks in particular who were instrumental in helping us reach our goal. Clyde Howell, Craig Eiling, Gabrielle Dion Kindom, Alyssa and Evan Cawley, Lauren Lake, Jason and Lisa Carrignan, Steve Lott, Zach Hetrick, Casey Hatcher, and Carlos Ochoa. Thank you so much, and thanks to all of you for helping us and for making this a great year. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people, and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of The Bible for Normal People, and I'm here with Jared, as always, except for the solo episodes. Right. No, we're there. We actually stand over each other's shoulder yeah, during and, those. And we just judge. don't hear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> I have I have cards of one to ten, and every time Pete makes a point, I hold up one. Four, yeah. four point five. Come on, I heckle, and then I throw food at him. So <laughs> I don't care. So yeah. So this this is a joint episode. As you know, maybe you're new to the podcast, but we have guests on most of the time. But we have other times where it's just Jared or me, and other times when it's both of us doing a joint episode. Not only so that, but it episode. is also the last episode of season five. Is so it really. Yeah, it is. I'm sorry, I just really? Pete's mind is blown, and now he's We've slipping had five into depression. Um, just so everyone knows, we take a break. Yeah. So there will be no new episodes in January. But you know what? We do that on purpose because I know, I know you have not listened to every episode of this right. podcast, and or so understood it. So just keep listening to it again. And you can again go and again. back. This is the t- this is rerun season. Yeah. And then we'll be back in February for season six. Yes, and a lot of fun guests. So. But until we get there, until we get there. We have a modern bias that assumes historical accuracy is most important. It's almost inevitable that you will read your own context into the Bible. That is something the ancient world would not have shared. They would have looked at historical accuracy and said, okay, that's great, but you're sacrificing relevancy. What is God saying to us now, not just back then? We have a perfectionistic religion where it's all or nothing. If Mm. we can't have absolutes, it's worth nothing, which I think is just not how the world works. So, okay, here, the topic for today is something that, and if you've listened for a long time, this is sort of a theme that is in a good number of our episodes, not all of them, but we keep sort of coming back to this, and there's a reason for it, and I guess we'd put it this way, right? It's the inevitability of reading the Bible creatively. Right. Which sounds, right. if you're not familiar with us, that's going to, what are you talking about? But it's... The inevitability that the Bible, when somebody picks it up and reads it, you have to be creative to a certain extent to connect it to your 
universe. So let's let's contrast that to start out with with the the opposite understanding, which is what I would have grown up with, and probably you as well to some extent later on, which is to be faithful to the Bible is to empty ourselves and only hear what the Bible says. Right. What the Bible says in its original context is what we're always after. So, when you go to church on Sunday, you're trying to get your own viewpoint out of the way and hear only what the Bible is trying to say. Right. So, maybe let's talk about why that's problematic. Well, I mean, let's – two sides to that. First of all, it's not entirely bad. Right? right, it's really, really good to Which try is what to makes understand. This complicated. That's just it, right? It's not either or. It's the fact that we want to respect what biblical authors were saying in their moment in time, as best as we can. The problem is we're so separated by time and language, so we can't really get there completely. But we want to do the best we can to respect what authors are trying to say. Right. I mean, I want to be respected that way when I write something. I don't like people reviewing books of mine and making stuff up. I didn't say that. I didn't mean that, right? So, we want to do the best that we can. However, you can't ignore the fact that the people reading the Bible are not omniscient beings who can simply transport themselves back into time, but we are all encultured people, and that makes a difference in how we read the Bible. Which is to say, that's where this idea of creativity comes in. We're always trying to bridge the gap between the text, which was written at times that the authors of those texts could not possibly have envisioned people like us or people like in the medieval period or even the early centuries of the Christian faith. It's a different time and well, place. Well, sometimes people, though, will the argument would be, well, not humanly possible, but if God is superintending this writing, then God could have. However, my argument to that is, but that's not what happened. When we look at God the could Bible, have, but it didn't. <laughs> when we right. look at the Bible, it is encultured. Right. So, and what do we mean? Maybe we can talk about what it means to be encultured because I think that it's kind of an abstract. Yeah, term. I guess so. I mean, the way I you you jump in here too, but the way I think about it is that to be encultured means humans can't escape their human location or time and place, and that there are so many factors involved in that. It's simply. I mean, a big one is just when you were born, where you were born, your nationality, your your background, maybe an education, but that's not even that important. It's just the air that you breathe by being a person like myself, born in 1961 and not in 1861, mm-hmm. and born, you know, in a, in a, a let's say, lower middle class family in New Jersey. Rather than an affluent aristocratic family in you know southern Canada or something, you know, I just it, it it makes it truly does make a difference. And there are some examples if we look at the Bible of examples of enculturation. There's some that would be not controversial, not heated at all. For instance, uh, units of measurement. Right. So when it says a cubit, okay, but that's a cultural thing. We're not we're not up in arms that it doesn't say miles yes. or meters. Right. It says cubit. Okay, well that's fine. That's an cultural. We know a translation. We you know, we know how to sort of translate that. Uh, but then when, you know, we may be a little more controversial of something like the assumption that women are property. 
mm-hmm. in the Old Testament laws. Yeah, at least in parts of them. That's but a yeah, culture. But there, right. Yeah. That's an assumption mm-hmm. that's sort of in the background because of the social location in which the text was written. Um, and, you know, then we get to maybe much more controversial when we get to some of the New Testament things. I'm thinking of, for instance, uh, language around God being the Father. Mm-hmm. Is that somehow less cultural, right? So, sometimes people would say, okay, cubits, that's cultural. And we have to sort of let go of that cultural baggage and we translate it to our modern times. So, yeah. even modern translations might not say cubit anymore. It might translate into meters or feet or something like that but then when we get into things like god the father is that a product of culture or women should be silent in the church right is that a product of culture or is that something that is still and the problem for me is the bible is enculturated and it doesn't tell us when it's being enculturated and that becomes a big problem and in a way it isn't thoroughly enculturated but what does that mean so uh, just to be clear this podcast is not about solving that issue, like what's enculturated, what isn't, and how do you know, and what do you do? It's, it's only about the recognition that you can expect to see in reading the Bible a highly enculturated text. And in fact, it's not just things like, again, maybe to get a little controversial, Genesis 1 reflects creation stories, and many would say myths or maybe legends or something of creation, it seems pretty clear from a couple hundred years of unearthing ancient stories from Mesopotamia and from Egypt and from Canaan even that, you know, it's these stories are all breathing a similar kind of air. So, there's an encultured nature to that. And I think most people I know at least have come to some peace with it. But it's even, you know, within the Bible itself, that to me is the fascinating thing. And that's really where this story begins, of how within the Bible itself, you see later writers looking back at earlier stories and giving them a different spin because of who they are and what the needs and concerns are of the people of their time. What would be a few examples of that to help help anchor this conversation? Because I think it is really important to see what the Bible itself does. Right. I mean, uh, a rather straightforward example, and I use this a lot, has to do with slavery laws in the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament. In Exodus, in chapter, what is it, 20, it has, uh, or 21, I forget, it's it's one of those law chapters, once you get to the Ten Commandments and you're reading laws for about the next several weeks, pretty much in the Bible, but... Slow um, reader. Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, the, the law is about Hebrew slaves, and uh, it allows for Hebrew slaves, but the males can go free after seven years if they choose to, but they can choose to stay and commit themselves to the slave owner. But these are Hebrew slaves, right? Uh, but the women can't, they don't have the right to do that, but you jump to Deuteronomy and all of a sudden, it's the law is very emphatic that the male Hebrew slaves and the female Hebrew slaves have the right to go free should they choose after seven years. There's a huge difference there and people talk about, well, it's a different 
socio-religious political context. It's just happening at a different time. And people have called Deuteronomy a little bit more humane, for example, than Exodus, and Exodus is older than Deuteronomy. That's that's the general argument. And then in Leviticus, you also have a slave law where it says, uh, yeah, we don't have Hebrew slaves. We were slaves in Egypt. We don't do that. You can enslave people from other places. That's fine, but you can't have Hebrew slaves at all. So, the question is, you know, what does God think about Hebrew slaves? Well, you have three different answers, and they represent different generations engaging this tradition in ways that are, they make more sense to them about what God is like. I, I would put it that way. Mm-hmm. And and the, the Hebrew Bible is certainly full of examples of that. I mean, we can go on and, I mean, if you want to, I wrote this book, How the Bible Actually Works. I give a lot of examples there of how the Bible seems to act this way. Mm-hmm. And with those examples, let's bring it back around to what's your main takeaway from that in this context of creative interpretation? That we see biblical writers engaging their tradition, which is oftentimes a written, it's an inscripturated tradition, so to speak, engaging it in ways that say, listen, that doesn't make sense to us, but this makes sense to us here today. And we're going to connect with God this way, which is different. You know, I mean, another another way is how, uh, you know, in the book of Ezekiel, for example, this is another example I love to talk about, how the people who are in exile are basically complaining to Ezekiel saying, it's not fair that we're in exile because we didn't do anything personally as our parents who did it. Why are we suffering for our parents' sins? And Ezekiel says, you know, if I can paraphrase, yeah, I was talking to God about this, you're right. You know, the person who sins is the person who should get punished, not the person who happens to have parents who did something wrong. And if your parents were awesome, that doesn't mean you get a free ride, because you're everyone's responsible for their own fate, so to speak. Well, that's intention very much with what you find, for example, in the book of Exodus, which says, you know, for it's, you know, the commandment to not com- uh, create idols, but if you do that thing, you will be punished for multi-generations if you sin, but you'll be blessed for multi-generations if you don't sin. So, there are multi-generational blessings and punishments in Exodus that are then sort of looked at in Ezekiel as saying, yeah, that's, that doesn't seem right. right? Mm-hmm. So, there, there's, you're engaging the text, not just sort of doing what it says, but you're, all, you're trying to envelop that into your own moment in space and time where what is God saying to us now, not just back then? Yeah, and maybe it, you can maybe correct this, but I think one of the clearest, maybe the most, one of the more stark examples of this when we take it out of sort of this ethical realm and just how does the Bible itself treat other scriptural passages, a classic example as we head into to Christmas here mm-hmm. is how Matthew uses the yes. Old Testament. So, well, we have in, in Matthew chapter 2, this phrase which he says, so was fulfilled what the Lord said through the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son, right? So, from when Matthew is writing that, it's in the context of the birth story of Jesus. Jesus goes down to Egypt and then goes back out. And Matthew says, the reason Jesus, you know, the reason the prophet said this and Jesus does this, these go hand in hand. The prophet said it, Jesus fulfills it, 
out of Egypt I have called my son. Well, if we go back to what prophet he's talking about. Hosea. In Hosea 11, yeah. verse 1, it starts with, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. It says it right there. Yeah. It's about Israel. Yeah. It's not about Jesus. It's not even predictive. It's retrospective. It's looking back at something and it's saying, looking this is how we got started. What a mess that was. Yeah, it's you looking know? at the history, and it's looking at the history of Israel. It's right. not looking forward, and it's not talking about Jesus. And, and Israel's disobedience. Right. Like, I brought, after all I've done for you, right? I brought you out of Egypt, and here you go. So, but again, Matthew treats this as a fulfillment, right? Right. And the, we could talk for hours about what fulfillment means right. in Matthew. We don't need to do that. But the point is that he engaged a text in a way that was, let's call it creative. Mm-hmm. You know, the Jewish word is midrashic. It's midrash. And you know, that's, there's precedent for this sort of thing in antiquity. Right. See, there comes a point, we talked about the inevitability of creative interpretation. When you have texts that were written for a point in time in history, let's say during the time of David or even a little bit before or during the later years of the monarchy or during the exile, and that text comes to be very important to a community of people. And they see it as a way of communing with God and understanding what God is about. Guess what? As generations come and go, they want to know, well, what's, what, what's in it for us now? Like, where does this faith – we don't live back in the days of Isaiah. We don't live back in the days of David or – you know, Solomon, the Proverbs and all that. We don't live back and then. We live at a different time. We live in a time that the biblical writers themselves were not writing to or about. So, how do you bring that into your own existence? You, you have to engage in some rather creative interpretation of either the, you know, portions of the Bible that were written, or if they weren't written, at least the traditions behind them. And one of those things is simply even the language that's used, because all languages evolve, right? The language, the way Hebrew was, let's say, in the 10th century BCE, is not the way Hebrew was in, let's say, the 2nd century BCE. All languages evolve. Words take on different meanings. And you need to engage this in a way that brings it into your moment. Reading about a battle from the Old Testament, you know, what Christians call the Old Testament, reading about a battle about what happened back then, it's like, well, so what? Mm -hmm. What does this have to do with us here today? That is always a creative act because you're bridging horizons, you're bridging over a length of time, and what happened back then is not important at least it's not of sole importance. It's actually, in many respects, of minor importance to what is God still doing now. The trick is you're using a text that wasn't written to you. Right. Right? That's, you're, not, you're not using a text that's written to you. You're using a text that's written to other people. So, how do you – I imagine doing that with Shakespeare or something. You know, how do you, how it's do you funny that you just said that, that to your life? because I thought of uh, – if we're, we're in sync here. Because I was immediately thinking of The Taming of the Shrew and then the 90s version, 10 Things I Hate About You. Oh. 
That's right. Which is like an update of yeah. Shakespeare, which is right. different than, say, the Leonardo DiCaprio version of Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. They're both taking Shakespeare and bringing them into the modern framework. Okay, so we have these two sort of like stories. One is The Taming of the Shrew. One is Ten Things I What About You? What's Ten that? Things I Hate About You. Who was in it? Is that Kate Hudson? No, it was, uh, now you get to ask me that, but it was Heath Ledger. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I think the, I saw it. Yeah. I don't remember. Anyway, yeah. but so what you're saying is that the, the, the shaping is different, but also it affects the message on some level, doesn't right. it? So again, Romeo and Juliet, we have the same plot, the same language. Really, all that changes is the, the clothes and the aesthetic. But for The Taming of the Shrew, I mean, it's there in the title, Shrew. Like, that is not a very woman empowerment kind of no. thing. Right. And it's really about uh, Petruccio. I don't know how you say his name. Petruccio? I, I never say Shakespearean stuff. No. no was, <laughs> totally okay. different yes. story. We're anyway, so cultured around this, here, by the way, It's this couple, folks. and basically he's using all of these torture devices, to be honest, to subdue the female protagonist into being obedient. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you watch 10 Things I Hate About You, it's about this headstrong woman who's yes. not going to be tamed. Right. And she becomes the protagonist. Yes. It's, it's, a, it's a woman empowerment thing. Right, right. So, the message completely flips, but it's using the same structure right. of the story. It's playing off of this And that's plot. that's analogous to, for example, the different slave laws, right? Or, you know, another example we've talked about on this podcast, because it's so huge and so obvious, is how First and Second Chronicles significantly retells the history of David, of Solomon, and of all the kings afterwards. It's That in and of itself is just a beautiful thing to study to see this. And, you know, in the New Testament, the Gospels, they do this too. It's a little bit different, but not too different, because you've got these four Gospels, and they have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're very similar, but they're different. Well, why are they different? Well, they're different because they have different audiences they're speaking to. But what's fascinating is that it seems really, really clear to New Testament scholars that Matthew and Luke have Mark and say, yeah, he says this. I'm going to say it differently. I'm going to change it. And the message is altered as a result of that. And of course, John is sort of doing his own thing that is is a very cosmic Christ-ish kind of telling. And, you know, that's that's the high Christology gospel, as people put it. I mean, the most divine... A little divine, more abstract. Yeah, a little abstract. And the most divine Jesus is there as... And not Opposed really... to maybe in, Mark's... Yeah, definitely Mark's. human Jesus. Yeah, exactly. So, And it's more complicated than that. But the gist is that you do have different portraits of Jesus, even though they're working from a similar base source... But they're telling the story differently. Why not? Not just, well, you know, I don't want to get into copyright infringement, so I'm going to tell this a little bit differently and call it, a, you know, my own story. It's because of the settings that they're writing to. That's the key thing. Matthew and Luke would be irresponsible not to do what they do with the base Jesus story, which seems to be largely in Mark. It, they would be irresponsible. You need to. Update's not the right word, but it's not a wrong word either. You need to sort of bring this into your present because you're trying to actually engage real people because this is of spiritual value, which is the great irony with some of the more conservative approaches, which they just stick to the text and don't really add much to it. That's almost leaving the text in the past. But they say that, but they don't actually do that, which for me is the dangerous part of that because they're conflating because they play such a high value on just sticking to the text. They can't admit 
that what you're doing on a Sunday morning in almost any evangelical church mm-hmm. is getting an updated version. But you're pretending that that's what the Bible was actually written for. Right. It really was written for you today, this morning, which I think is a little dangerous not to have that distance of saying, we have to respect, respect the distance, what yeah. God was doing in the past with these people as they try to engage God. And now we have to use that as a template, as an as a model for now, how do we do that on our own? Mm-hmm. If we don't have that distance, I just think it gets dangerous. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. It gets dangerous in the sense that we it's almost inevitable, another thing's inevitable, that you will read your own context into the Bible. And call it the context of the exactly, Bible. Exactly. That's yeah. right. Instead of saying, we have different contexts, what can we do with this text or tradition to have it make more sense to yeah. us? Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, I think a classic example in you know the last several hundred years of interpretation, at least in the West, this concerns the enslavement of African Americans reading the Exodus story as a story of liberation from slavery, essentially. And you can go back and read the Exodus story and say, it's not, not really, it sort of is there. I mean, clearly they're liberated, but God clearly doesn't have much of a problem with people being enslaved because it happens in the laws of Exodus itself. It's not just purely liberation. But from the point of view of later generations needing to see how does God connect with us here and now, you will read that story without any embarrassment in terms of your own immediate context. I mean, I think, well, we all do that. That's sort of the point of this, you know, and the the inevitability of reading texts creatively, which is that's what we mean, reading texts in ways that draw it out of its let's use a fancy term, draw it out of its historical particularity, its, its meaning and, and essence back then, and brings it forward into your own reality. This is, you know, what Gautamer talked about, the, you know, the, the philosopher-linguist, the two horizons. That is the essence mm-hmm. of Bible reading. It's the essence of hermeneutics. It's the essence of theology, really. It's the essence of meaning-making. It's the essence of meaning-making. Is you have to take what's yes. out there, take what's in me, and we have to merge these horizons. Right, and, and have that's a little conversation between the two, but it's hard right. to do sometimes. Right. Well, yeah. I, I want to go back, not to get too abstract here, but there's, maybe I'll only talk about a few, but I, I have this, you know, I'm doing this solo series on the making of the modern mindset. Yeah. And I think there's a few assumptions that I'm going to get into in part three, which is will be in season six. But there's a few assumptions here that I think play into this. One, which we've talked about before, and you, you mentioned it, so I'm just going to highlight it here. We have a modern bias that assumes historical accuracy is most important. I think that's the, that is something the ancient world would not have shared. Mm-hmm. They would have looked at historical accuracy and said, okay, that's great, but you're sacrificing relevancy to us. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. There's a dead fact back there. Now you know what actually happened, but what does that have to do with us? Right. So, you may gain one thing, but you're actually taking a loss on this other thing. And I think the ancient world would have seen... The, again, that, I'm, I'm putting, even saying this, I'm putting modern categories on it, 
but which I we think, can't help. Yeah, right. but I think it, there's an assumption we're privileging historical accuracy by even asking these questions or having this be a dilemma. And I think it's important to recognize. Mm-hmm. So, when we say, when we're uneasy about creative, quote, interpretations, one assumption is it's because that's less than. It's, it's not as valuable as what really happened, right. which is itself an assumption. Yeah. You've already entered into a paradigm. You're already putting your context into it by having that uneasy feeling of, uh, this, we need to get at what it actually was about. I agree. In a way, though, one could say, and I think there's some value to this, is that, yeah, but that historicistic mindset is part of our context. True. So, the way in which we talk about this topic, the inevitability of creative interpretation in light of this strong pull we all feel in the modern world, at least in the West, towards historicity and what mm-hmm. was said and what wasn't said – that's the conversation to be had, right? It's not choosing one or the other. It's the right. fact that, okay, it's inevitable that we have to engage text creatively because we're living in a time that the writers couldn't possibly have envisioned. So, how do we do that? Now, one way of doing it is to boil down the message real quick to like, mm-hmm. God doesn't want you to go to hell. So, everything wraps around that. But if you get into the Bible more, it's like other sorts of questions start ra- being raised in our minds. And how do we have that conversation that honors the real historical impulse, which we also value, right? We, we mentioned this before. It's nice to know what Pharisees were about when you read the Gospels. It sort of helps you to understand that. It's nice knowing the context maybe of Genesis chapter 1 and how that helps us understand it. But that almost highlights the distance between that and us. So, what do we now do today with those texts? To what extent does the history of it guide us or direct us? Mm-hmm. And to what extent doesn't it? And that's that's the question we're right. not going to answer today. That's called theology. Right. That's a which, whole thing. Which is itself, again, a... Okay. So, that leads me into my second point. So, let me just wrap... Okay. You let have me other just, points. Let me just wrap the first one up, okay. which is, I think you're right. We have to accept it. It's not an either or, but I think it's a matter of deprivileging it as though it mm-hmm. is the right way right. to do it. It may be our way. It may be – we have no choice really, to be honest, as modern thinkers to privilege this historicity. But we can kind of work on seeing it for what it is and maybe putting it in a different context. Which is the postmodern turn in a sense, right? Exactly. Yeah, should we talk about well, that? Well, no, that's no, what I'm doing. Just, that's yeah, that's okay. why I'm, oh. I'm setting up part three of my I'm so – we're on the same wavelength. Yeah. That's twice in one day. So, I don't even understand that. So, the second would – again, this these are kind of – these modern assumptions are going to lead to the postmodern turn, which I think a lot of us are starting to creep our way into, which is we also privilege the singularity, the one right way over the multiplicity. Instead of saying – it's great whenever uh, we have liberationist theologians show us how we can read the Bible from a liberationist perspective. We still think that's great and that's good, but there still is the monolith, the right way to do it, and yeah. these are all subsidiary. It's yes. all theology has an adjective. So, it's great that we have liberationist theology, but we always have to have this anchor point called yeah. theology. The constraint or something. Yeah, and we, call right? that, we call that theology. Mm-hmm. But we don't realize that when we say without an adjective, what we mean is white, European, mm-hmm. male-dominated yeah. theology. But if we put those adjectives there, now we get really scared because there's just this multiplicity of which one's the right one. It's like asking which gospel, though, is the right gospel. Yeah. 
Well, we have the multiplicity in there. How about we learn how to value multiplicity instead of always trying to subsume it into this one right thing? Well, that's a whole mind trip right there. I mean, because it's so different from what we're used to doing. And I agree with that. It's learning from the Bible what it means to engage this tradition and this text. And the privileging of the historical way of reading, there has value has come from that. You know, and I would never say there isn't a lot of value, but the question again is, this is why people get scared. Yeah, I mean, and and understandably so, because you don't have the constraints, right? We want some sort of constraint. And I think it's a matter of maybe learning a different set of constraints or something. And again, our purpose here is not to say, here's what the constraints are. Now (laughs) you know everything's going on. It's more like this discussion that we're having here is an inevitable hermeneutical and theological discussion that, and I'm going to riff on Trip Fuller here a little bit, we're in discussing it, we're doing theology. That's right. It isn't like we have to solve it and then we can do theology. We're doing it by talking like this. Now, not everybody has to talk like this, but we do, you know, and a lot of you listening have to talk like this too because you're living in the middle of it. So, I, I find that fascinating and how the biblical tradition is we see that happening within the pages of the Bible. And it's like, once you see it, it's like, why wasn't I taught this? It's like, it's all over the place. And then you throw Judaism, sort of Second Temple Judaism in the middle of that, where Jews had to find ways to connect with an ancient tradition, which assumed you're in the land. And you had a temple. a temple, right? Mm-hmm. Kings, you basically have a monarchy and a land that's your own, and here's how you act, this is what you do. So, what do you do when you're in exile and you don't have a temple to sacrifice to? What do you do? Well, there's a whole way of interpreting sacrificial texts that were not engaging in sacrifice, but it was a different kind of sacrifice, like more mm-hmm. of a personal sacrifice, you know. And, and you have different things like almsgiving and prayer, which become – not that it wasn't there before, but it becomes kind of a, a spiritual way spiritual sacrifice. Exactly, right. It becomes a way of communing with God, yep. taking the place of the temple. And that's why the devastation of the temple was it was, it was, was a devastation. Which I think a lot of Christians would do that now. Right. It's a, a spiritualization mm-hmm. of what in the Old Testament was very concrete practices. Yeah. Like right. actually sacrificing animals right. at the temple. Yeah. And James Kugel has, I mean, he was on our podcast a couple of times so just to give due credit, but he talks about the three omnis. God is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. Did I get them all right? Yeah, the three omnis, he calls them. And those are terms that come to Judaism as a result of gauging the different context of Greco-Romanism. Right. Right. So, the, the, the Bible doesn't really, even omnipotent, it doesn't talk the same way as you find later in Judaism. But these are adjustments and changes in the theology because the God of old has to have a connection to the people of the present. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's sort of a way of summarizing this whole discussion. It is absolutely inevitable. Yeah. And there's developments within culture that then get read, scripture passages get read in light of. For instance, I'm thinking of when you're talking about Second Temple Judaism in that time period, thoughts of the afterlife. Mm-hmm. begin to develop more fully. This idea of a hell and a heaven that's separated by your behavior, good people go here, bad people go there, that we don't find in the Hebrew Bible, right. really. Now, we find it now 
because we read back into it after these developments. Sure. But again, this idea that we can just not be influenced by the culture. That's often the the weapon that gets lobbed against people who don't read the Bible in a particular way. You're just compromising with the culture. Mm-hmm. No, we just are encultured beings, yeah. and there's really no way around it. And it's a little scary that you don't see that you're doing the same thing. Right. And it's it's also scary that you don't see how the biblical writers are doing the same thing. Exactly. You know, culture is not the enemy. Culture is a fact. Yes. Right. And the question is, what do we do? Well, aren't there places where the Bible challenges culture? Yeah, of course there are. But you see, that's the conversation. It's not either or. It's And every culture is not a monolith. Right. So when you say doesn't culture critique culture, yeah, you're not saying anything that important. That's just what we mean by culture. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) There are subcultures within that. And we have these different voices all within a certain culture. Second Temple Judaism is a diverse Right. Set of concerns and Well, we've talked about the, the core testimony and the counter testimony of this theology that says if you do good things, good things happen to you. Yes. If you do bad things, bad things happen to you. That's not like saying everybody in the culture believes that. It's saying that was a dominant theme and you think, sure, there was minority voices that were critiquing it and right. challenging it, just like every culture has. Yeah. And that's, again, part of the biblical witness, so to speak. So, right. Yeah. I, I just, you know, I mean – Part of me is like, why are we even doing this podcast? It seems pretty. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. No, because it is the thing is, it is. If you want the Bible to have the say, that's part of the characteristic of the Bible, and we can, you know, put things. Well, it's inerrant. Okay, well, whatever that means, you got to account for the stuff that right. the diversity and the changes and how the context of the writers affect how they thought about before and after. You know, mm-hmm. you're doing a series on Jonah. Jonah's one of those things. What does God think of Assyrians? Well, not what he had thought before, because you read Nahum and God doesn't like Assyrians, but now he wants them saved, you know, or right. redeemed or whatever the word yeah. is. In the, you know, so I just find that interesting and fascinating. And the thing is that, I mean, Jared, you brought up before preaching today, sermons today, or any Bible reader today. And it can, you know, there is a precedent for that in the church. It's not just the New Testament which gets really creative with things like the centrality of land in the Hebrew Bible, which is still there in Second Temple Judaism. But New Testament's like, yeah, whatever. It's not that big of a deal. You know, the temple is always important, but seeing Jesus as in, in encapsulating what God's presence means. And then Paul taking that to be, it's the church actually that's the temple of God. These are, I'm going to tell you, these are shifts in thinking, right, that are dependent on the context of these writers, which is namely their faith in Christ. This, the, it comes from that, right? Mm-hmm. And you can't say, well, it was always there in the Bible. It wasn't there in the Bible. Mm-hmm. It's a change. Mm-hmm. It's a shift. Well, I think the two, you can correct me, but I think the two biggest shifts that we see in the New Testament that causes them to interpret the Bible creatively, meaning the whole Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible, is this internal work of faith in Christ and then this external fact that they are now amongst, they're sort of cosmopolitan. Yes. They are amongst Gentiles regularly now. Mm -hmm. And so, we have to, these two things are coming together to really challenge the New Testament writers on what the heck do we do with both of these realities. Right. We are now confronted all the time with Gentile. We're in a Gentile world. We don't get to sort of separate ourselves out. And we have this Christ event that happened. Right. And we have faith in that. 
and now we have to make sense of all this other stuff. And, and the Christ event is about becoming undead, and that sort of is a universal theme, right? So, mm-hmm. it's things like that and how you can't be parochial anymore. In what that does moment. that mean? Parochial? Yeah, I don't it's think a lot of people are going to Catholic know what that kids means. to go to parochial school. <laughs> exactly. Now, pro- you, you can't be, you, you can't live in a bubble, right? right? That's what go. it means. And that is a different kind of concern, for example, than the ancient Israelites might have had when they looked at their relationship with the nations that are out there someplace, but now they're all mixed together. And they have been for, since before the time of Jesus, like two, three hundred years before at least. They, they've they been around and living and sort of happy. And actually, it started with the exile because not all Jews came back from the Babylonian exile in the 6th century. A lot of them stayed. And it became sort of the nerve center of Judaism for a thousand years. That's where the Talmud came from. So, it's like you have the the the, the slow internationalizing, so to speak, of, of this Israelite faith, which is very much landlocked and, and it starts exploding. But again, it's the different contexts that get people – it's not just reading the Bible differently. It's thinking about God differently. And within the Bible, that's already happening. Mm-hmm. And for the church, you know, we go back to, you know, the ancient creeds, for example, of the church, you know, the, the fifth and fourth centuries basically, and there are more than that. But how they were not just giving the Bible straight. They, they weren't just summarizing the Bible. Mm-hmm. It was in the context of of somewhat political and also theological debates about basically Trinity yeah. and Christology mm-hmm. and what do we do with them. And to iron that stuff out, although I'm not sure how much any of it was actually ironed out, but they use philosophical language of the time. Yeah, you know? God of very God, yeah. begotten, not made. Yeah. That's language. Being of one f- substance with the Father, which is, that word substance is, is, a, the, is a philosophically loaded term, right? right. And it's like... Because, and the, just to be clear, yeah, yeah. the language that they were using, the Greek had a whole history yes, philosophically. Exactly. So, it was a very enculture. These are encultured statements, but aren't they like the thing that sets the church going? I wouldn't say it's a, it sets the church going. I think it summarizes debates at the time and they have abiding value, but a lot of stuff also has abiding value. I'm not against creeds is what I'm saying. It's just they're limited in scope and they may need to be brought into a different time and place as well. Well, they tend to be crystallized and promoted at times of great shifts or crisis. Like, we think about how the Old Testament is written. There, it's not like it's it's this ongoing thing. It's that these, I think in science you call it punctuated equilibrium. It's yeah. like these moments of mm-hmm. crisis. Then we write everything down and we try to, what are the debates? And we have arguments. Then we move 500 years and we have another one. And we see this where, you know, within Christendom, Constantine is making, we're spreading, it's just this right. explosion of Christianity, all these different perspectives. So, of course, we're going to have this climactic moment of trying to like figure out what we're talking about. And the reason I mention that is because we have the same thing happen in the Protestant Reformation. There's a reason yeah. why when we look at church history, we're like ancient creeds, a lot happened, the hundreds of years, blah, blah, blah. Protestant Reformation, it's like this is where the plethora of all this stuff is coming out because there's these big shifts happening. And if you look at the debates, and the arguments that the Reformation, the Reformers have, look at Calvin, Luther, these guys, what they're talking about, what seems to be super important to them is not the same thing that was super important in the fourth century. And when we read it today, we're like, why are they like literally wanting to kill each other over what happens in the Lord's Supper right? or yeah. what happens in baptism? These were 
really important back Long-standing then. Long-standing religious disagreements and wars and, and things like that, yeah. right? So, there's a context yeah. for that, too. But the, yeah, there's a context, and I think the, the key, too, is sometimes those are I want to say like emergency context, but well, they're, they're crisis moments. moments. They're, they're perceived crisis moments. And that moments. itself is a context. We have to be aware that that's right. when these things are happening. Well, for, I mean, and, and to bring this to today, for example, I mean, my experience, and I'm sure yours as well, is I've known a lot of Christians in my life who, for example, have been, let's say, vanilla sort of evangelical, but then gravitated to the Reformed tradition, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it's like... It, it it gives an anchor and it becomes an absolute, but it's it's highly contextual. Yep. Doesn't mean you can't learn from it and value it, but it's this is not the crowning achievement of the history of the church. Mm-hmm. Or or some, I mean, how many people have we known sort of disaffected evangelicals and and Calvinists who become Roman Catholic yep. and Orthodox. Or Eastern Orthodox, yep. Right, mm-hmm. because that's going back even further. And I hear a lot of uh, rhetoric, I mean that in a neutral sense, not a negative sense, but a lot of rhetoric about just going back to the creeds right. as if that solves the problem. They're also contextual, right? Yeah. Well, well can, can we, we just, just go, go back, back to, to the, the Bible? Bible? <laughs> <laughs> we did not rehearse oh that, folks. Gosh. We did not rehearse that. <laughs> Beautiful. We harmonized <laughs> we it very harmonized. nicely. To, right? So, go back to the Bible and it's like, okay, this doesn't set the intellectual stage for us. There's still, it's not like there's no work to be done because we have to navigate the Bible's own inner dynamic, which right. at times is a fierce debate mm-hmm. and at times just different perspectives. Mm-hmm. And it's like, this might sound discouraging to people. For me, it's like really helpful to know that I can't just lock in on a Proof text, I can't lock in on a book of the Bible. I have to pay attention to... Or a time period. Or a time period. Right. Right. I have to respect the text enough to allow the inner dynamic which the people who canonize this stuff, or they they collected these writings, Jews, you know, collected the the Hebrew Bible, and and early Christians collected what we call the New Testament. Mm -hmm. They understood the fact that Paul and James don't seem to be getting along very well. Right. Just read Romans and then read James right after it. If you've never done it, it's like, okay. <laughs> I think they sort of know each other. And then Paul alludes to that in Galatians, right? So, mm-hmm. And they have different gospels, different takes on Jesus. And you have a very violent book like the book of Revelation, and then you have, you know, the Sermon on the Mount and the God's, you know, the, the sun and the rain on the just and the unjust, that kind of thing, yep. right? So, so you've got a, a multivalent, as they call it, text, different voices, and we can never get back to that sort of Archimedean point there that, okay, now we have it all, right? So, the Bible itself, the tradition itself, is demonstrating to us our own the need for personal investment in that tradition. Another way of saying creative, I think, the need for the personal investment to contemporize it. You know, to mm-hmm. the, the the technical term is to actualize the text. You're making it actual for yourself. Right. That's theology, and that's the entire history of the Christian and Jewish traditions. Right including the inscripturated tradition. Now, maybe it would be nice if we had a pamphlet and here are the 10 things you do. We don't have that, right? But I think you've made this point before. In some ways, I'm really glad that we don't, because even with the uncertainty of what we have, we have oppressed and created power structures with it. 
Yeah. Imagine if we had the definitive thing. I, I just don't think we would handle it well. Right. <laughs> Although, you know, with the, with the fact that things can be interpreted different ways, the people in power do do that. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, that, that raises the question, which we can't get into here. I mean, we're, we're really at the yeah. end of our mm-hmm. time. Here, right. But, like, how do you judge? This is a legitimate question. How do you judge what's a good use and a bad use? And my answer is, that's a very, very good question. People usually figure that out pretty quickly, mm-hmm. right? We don't champion interpretations that advocate killing other human beings. At least, I think we shouldn't. Most Christians would probably agree. But what TV preachers do, mm-hmm. right? The way they interpret Psalms or Proverbs or certain things Jesus says, and it's about making themselves very rich people, right? So, I think we have an instinct that says that's wrong, but it's hard to make up rules for how you, you well, know, that, go beyond. Well, that's what we, again, we, as a Christianity, I've come to realize we, we have a perfectionistic religion where it's all or nothing. If mm. we can't have absolutes, it's worth nothing, which I think is just not how the world works. We I actually kids that way, live in a wrong. way, we live in a world of, of probabilities and statistics, which is a world of wisdom. Yeah. So, I think we could say, we could list what really bad interpretations are that probably most of us would agree on, and we could list what really good interpretations are that most people would agree on. The challenge is, there's about 80% in there yeah. that we got to figure out. Right. And we have to figure that out for ourselves, we have to figure that out in our communities, in the broader church, and we are doing that. We're wrestling through that every day. That is podcasts and blogs and conversation around the coffee table and the dinner table and that is the theologizing for our time and what we're trying to figure out when we're having those conversations is is my interpretation a good one or a bad one is yours a good one or a bad one and and not just good and bad but this whole spectrum of in between right right and uh that's a hard lesson i think for a lot of us who are raised differently mm-hmm. including ourselves to to think through but that see what you just described to me that's the life of faith yes it's not what you have to do in order to have faith that is the life of faith right. and you know maybe we should let the bible and the tradition teach us that and listen and pay careful attention Excellent. All right. We are at the end of our time, so have a Merry Christmas. We'll see you in February. See ya. You just made it through another entire episode of The Bible for Normal People. Well done to you. And well done to everyone who supports us by rating the podcast, leaving us a review, or telling others about our show. We are especially grateful for our producers group who support us over on Patreon. They are the reason we are able to keep bringing podcasts and other content to you. So a big thanks to Andre Morgan III, Chris Abbott, Dustin Bauckham, Hype Baker, Joan Goodman, Kelly Nestlin, Marlon Wall, Matt Sutton, Tracy Roberts, and Sam and Nicole Galambos. If you would like to help support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash the Bible for Normal People. Where for as little as $3 a month, you can receive bonus material, be part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. We couldn't do what we do without your support. Our show is produced by Stephanie Spate, audio engineer Dave Gerhardt, creative director Tessa Stoltz, and web developer Nick Striegel. For Pete, Jared, and the entire Bible for Normal People team, thanks for listening.
We're just yak from forty foot. Yeah, more, more than thirty-two minutes. I want to eat lunch too. Take a nap. <laughs> nice, good for you. Yeah, and just so you guys know, uh, well, I shouldn't say that. Let me back up, Dave. You cannot also. You can't. Let me start over again, Dave. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.